the delay. Let me pray and we'll get into the scripture. Father, we love you and we're thrilled to be known and loved by you. All, all the riches uh, possible to know you've put in your son Jesus and you've given him to us. We would love to know him more fully from our time together in your word this morning and ask that you'd make it so by your spirit. In his name, amen. For many years, for decades, I had something to do with uh, building, building trades. In my teenage years, I got involved in roofing. I got involved in general construction for many years after that. I was a firefighter, and you study residential primarily and commercial construction just to know what you're getting into in any buildings you enter. Inspected residential construction for quite a while as well. And, you know, if you're in that trade, this would be true of any, any trade, most occupations. You've got a, a bunch of tools you need to have, and you need to know how to use them in order to do your job effectively. So all hammers and saws and that kind of thing for most residential construction. But you also have another set of tools that helps you discern how well you're doing, how, how efficiently, how effectively you're putting the components of that house together. And specifically, I'm thinking about levels and squares. So if you don't know, a level is a sort of a long, narrow rectangle. It could be made of wood or metal. It's got little bubbles in it, and they're oriented, and they're perfectly oriented so that if you lay that level down on a flat surface, it'll tell you whether it's horizontal, whether it's absolutely horizontal, or it's tipping one way or another. It's a tool to say, if you set a kitchen cabinet, it's level or it's not level. It's out of level. It tells the truth as to what the orientation of that cabinet is or anything else you put on. If you put that same level up against a vertical surface, it will tell you that that wall or cabinet or whatever it is, it's plumb. It's, it's 90 degrees. It's perpendicular to the floor or it's not. It's out. And then we also use squares. And a square is the shape of a capital L. It's a flat, typically steel or aluminum instrument. It's, it's marked with inches on it. And you can use it to lay out stair treads. But the other thing you do is you put it against a corner and it tells you that corner's true. It's 90 degrees or it's not 90 degrees. It's, it's too narrow, it's, it's obtuse, it's too wide. But those tools you apply to your work to tell you the work is what it's supposed to be or it's not. And as we head into the scripture this morning, God gave Israel some tools to tell them whether their lives, whether what they were doing were according to his plan and will or not. And the tool he gave them to do that was the law, the law of Moses. When I say law this morning, see law with a capital L, and I want to make sure that we're on the same page. If I told you we were reading from the law and the prophets, the, the law there is shorthand for the first five books of the Bible. And the prophets are the prophetic scriptures. And, and I might even mean by the law and the prophets all of the New Testament. The, the language is a little plastic. It can be used in a number of ways that way. But law there would be the first five books of the Bible. Or I might mean when I say law with a capital L, it's the covenant that God made with Israel. And that's not in Genesis that's in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And so when you read Exodus, you get up to chapter 20, and Israel's made it to Mount Sinai, and God there institutes the covenant, the law, with the nation. 
So major elements of those four books have what we would call the covenant. The law and the covenant are sometimes used interchangeably. That's another way to use the term law. The way we're using the term this morning is a little narrower than that. And the way I'm using law this morning are the commands within the covenant of what Israel was commanded to do and some things they were commanded not to do. So if I'm a Jew living under the law, under the covenant, I've got a level and a square. And I can gauge or judge my behavior against the law, the things God said might do these or don't do those things. They indicated whether I was living in faithfulness to God because the law is a covenant. It's an agreement between God and Israel. And also whether my behavior was appropriate as God said it. So the law of Moses or the covenant God made with Israel was not only a binding bilateral agreement. And guys, you need to remember too, we'll talk about this later. The law, the covenant was made between God and Israel. It was not made between God and any other nation. It did not apply because it was a covenantal relationship made only with Israel. So it's that covenantal relationship God made with Israel. And it's also an instrument that would tell them in what ways they were missing God's intentions, in what way their lives fell short of His standards. So simple question, take a perfect instrument that measures and put it up against any life and what will you find? Anyone's life. Put the law up against anyone's life and what do you find? You find sin. You find failure. There's no one that can be measured by God's law and come out being declared righteous in God's eye. It doesn't happen. That the level and the square, when they say they're out of level, you're out of level or you're not 90 degrees, they're doing exactly what they're made to do. They're telling you this thing's off. And when we hold the law up to our lives, either thought life, verbal, omission, commission, what you find is basically it does one thing. It shows you where you fail. That's the emphasis that we're going to see this morning. So it points out our failures. This is the fifth message in the series, Mercy Waiting, Lessons in Deuteronomy. And what we find is that the perfection of the law could never justify Israel or anyone. It would only necessarily show them their sin. We talked about this a little bit as we wound down last week, but that's really where we're going to spend our time this morning. As we pick up, we'll be in Deuteronomy 4. We'll start at verse 1. I'll read from the ESV. But you remember, or if you don't, Deuteronomy is written with Moses about to die and Israel's poised on the east side of the Jordan River waiting to go in. We heard last time Moses isn't going in with them, but the nation's going to, and he's reminding them of the last 40 years and of the covenant. And in chapter 4, he's exhorting them to live faithfully under the law. So Deuteronomy 4, you can open your Bibles there. That's actually probably the most convenient place to be this morning. Deuteronomy 4, I'll start at verse 1, and then I'm going to skip around a little bit, but I'll tell you where we're going. Uh, Moses said, Now, O Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you, and do them that you may live. And guys, that's the essence of the law. Do the law, keep the commandments so you can live. Now, this isn't eternal life. This isn't salvation. Remember, the covenant says 
if you do what God says, He will bless you in the land of promise. So long life, children, healthy crops, range, you name it. That's the blessing that the law promised. So he says, do them that for this purpose so that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it. You'll see that same phrasing in Revelation 22, the end of God's word. Don't take from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. Verse 6, skip down. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding. Skip way down to verse 40 there in chapter 4. He says, keep his statutes and his commandments which I command you today that it may go well with you and with your children after you. Turn to Deuteronomy 5, go down to verse 27. Moses is reminding them of what was going on at Mount Sinai 38 years earlier. And you remember at Sinai, the people see the glorious presence of God on Sinai. You know, there's this crazy cloud, there's thunder, there's lightning, the earth is shaking, and God's voice is booming, and they are terrified, which is what God meant for them to be. But the people said to Moses, you go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all that the Lord our God will speak to you, and we will hear and do it. We'll hear what God says and we'll do it. Verse 33, you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Turn another chapter, Deuteronomy 6, verse 3. This is a passage we'll look at more fully later. Uh, o Israel, be careful to do them, that it may go well with you. If you turn to chapter 11, verses 26 through 28, I'll just mention, uh, God warns them that the law is a blessing and a curse. And then if you go later into uh, chapters 27 and 28, uh, he articulates the blessings and the curses that would happen to them depending on their obedience. Uh, Leviticus 18.5, I'm jumping out of, of Deuteronomy just to get another summary point here. Leviticus 18.5, uh, keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. So, Shorthand, we just say the law said, do this, keep these, and you'll live. And, and life there was not only physical life on the earth, but it was the blessed life. So if you do these, you will live. Leviticus 18.5, if a person does them, he'll live. Now, we call this covenant that God made with Israel a conditional covenant. Because what they experienced in life was entirely predicated on whether or not they kept the conditions of the covenant. God was under no constraint to bless Israel if they disobeyed. He was very clear on this in the law and in the covenant. If you obey, I'll bless you. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. That's the relationship they're interacting with. So you've got in the law, in this covenant, you've got a perfect instrument for measuring covenant faithfulness because it's easy. We did this or we didn't do it. God's word said, do this, don't do it. It's absolutely clear. That's 
That's the relationship God's under with Israel. To do is to be able to be blessed. Not to do invites God's curse. So it's like an expensive level. I would say this too, just as an aside. We're focusing on the law as the rules about do and don't and then the repercussions for Israel and how we might use the law today as well. The law still magnifies God. So the law shows God's perfection. So the law lays out elements of God's character and the things God says because it represents God's perfection, His holiness. We'll see here in a minute. Even though we're talking about the only thing the law can do to us is judge us, the law is not somehow deficient. We'll mention that here. It shows us God and God's glory. And I would just tell you, if you haven't read through the Old Testament, it's a great place to hang out because you see God demonstrate His holiness and His righteousness throughout. But if we say, okay, God gives me this level and every time I hold my life up to it, I see I'm deficient. Or I put the square on my life and every time I do that, I just see all the ways I blow it. It sounds pretty negative, doesn't it? But listen Listen to a few verses out of the Old and New Testament. What you'll find is God's law is still praised in Old and New Testaments. There's nothing deficient with God's law, God's word, that portion of His word. It's praised. Listen to this from Psalm 19. In verses 7 through 9, the psalmist sort of pivots. He talks in the opening of the, the psalm that creation reflects God's perfections. And then he turns and he says, oh, and by the way, God's word reflects his perfections as well. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. Now, remember, when this was written, David wrote that he doesn't have all of the Old Testament. He doesn't have the prophets. Remember, he's right after Samuel. When he says the law, he's talking about the first five books of the Bible. He says, Lord, your word, the law is perfect. It's sure, it's pure, it's clean, it's true, it's altogether righteous. In fact, he goes on and says, it's more desirable than all the wealth you could get. It's sweeter to eat to your soul than honey is to your mouth. David does nothing but praise God's law. If you go to Psalm 119, the psalmist says things like this. Psalm 119, verse 18, Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. They're talking about the first five books of the Bible. That's a great prayer anytime we open Scripture, isn't it? Lord, would you open the eyes of my heart to see what you want me to out of your word? Well, that's what the psalmist is saying here. Lord, help me to see the wonders that are there in your law. Verse 72, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. This is like Psalm 19. And by the way, it's like the Proverbs, especially the first... Uh, maybe eight or nine chapters, where God's word and wisdom reflected His perfection. And the proverb Solomon says, this word, God's wisdom, the knowledge of God, is worth more than any kind of riches you could ever accumulate on the earth. And in fact, with a nod to that in Colossians 2, when Paul's talking about the faith and our standing in Christ, it says, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That for a person today who says they have wisdom, but they reject Christ, it's oxymoronic. It's in Christ that are, he's the fulfillment of all of God's revelation, all of God's wisdom. Uh, verse 97 in Psalm 119 says, 
Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. I wonder how many of us could say that. Lord, I'm meditating on your law all day on those first five books of the Bible. Hopefully those elements of Scripture, I hope, would be for all of us. Uh, listen to this, too, from Psalm 1. Psalm 1 sort of the introduction to all the Psalms. And, and it starts by saying, you know, happy or blessed is the man who he doesn't hang out with the wicked. But then it says his delight, his delight, what he loves to do, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And it says in his law, he's meditating day and night. And the guy who does that, David says, well, he's like a fruit tree that's planted by a stream of water. He's given fruit all the time. He's always well watered. Everything he does succeeds. That's life under the law, according to David, Psalm 1. And last along this line, Romans 7.12, Romans 7 is a sort of a key New Testament chapter regarding Christians and the law, but apart from other things, we'll look at a couple other elements of that in a moment, but from verse 12, Paul says this, looking back on the law, he says, the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So nothing wrong with the law. It's like a perfect level and a perfect square. It does exactly what God made it to. There's no fault in the law. It's perfect at showing us our faults. It's perfect at showing us God's perfections. So as Moses' life winds down, he's telling Israel, he's exhorting them, and that's true throughout this book, throughout Deuteronomy. He's saying, guys, be faithful do what you're supposed to do, refrain for what you're, from what you're not supposed to do so that you can be blessed. Be faithful so God can bless you. Uh, Christians' relationship to the law is often unclear uh, for many, many Christians, I think. Uh, no one is under the law of Moses today and no one can be uh, because the law, broadly, is a covenant. And we call it what do we call the law today? We call it the old covenant. Why is that? Because there's a new covenant, right? It's an old covenant. It's not in force. So if someone says today they're living under the law, they may be doing that on their own, but it's not because they're in the covenant with God through that instrument in those four books of the Old Testament. In fact, if you read Hebrews, Hebrews was written to believing Jews, they believed in Jesus, but they're suffering persecution, the way Christians around the world are today, perhaps the way some of us will in the future. And they're being tempted because Jews still, during this early persecution, Jews still had a, a special relationship under the Roman rule. They weren't being persecuted, but believing Jews, Messianic Jews, were. So they're being tempted to go back. We'll, we'll just go back. We'll just be Jews again. So the whole book of Hebrews is written to tell them, guys, the Old Testament, what you're going back to, it's like a shadow, and Jesus is the substance. And what you've got in the law and all that it provided, it was always meant to point to Jesus. So he's the fulfillment. He's superior to everything before it. Don't go back. In Hebrews 8.13, it says this, when God speaks of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. So the God that made the covenant has made that covenant obsolete. You can't live it under today. God's the one who determines what covenant we're under, and we're not under the old covenant today, we're under the new covenant. 
Also, listen to this from Romans 7, verses 4 and 6. Paul there is writing, he says, I'm writing to you Jews in Rome who know the law. And you're trying to figure out what your relationship to the law is. And guys, we want to tip our hat. The Jews in the first century, they've lived under the law all those years, centuries and centuries. And someone comes along and says the new covenant, and they are struggling. They're grappling to figure out what is our relationship to the law and to circumcision, to the temple and all the commands. They're figuring it out as they go. So they're confused. But Paul writes to them and he says, to you Jews who know the law, you have died to the law through the body of Christ. In, death is the end of whatever relationship you're in. He uses this too to talk about marriage as an example of that. If my spouse dies, I'm free from the law of marriage. I can remarry because my spouse is no longer here. And, and that's the analogy Paul's using here in Romans 7. He says, verse 6, we are released from the law. We've died to that which held us captive. So you can't live today under the covenant because God has moved it aside, if you will, with the new covenant. And we do want to say, and Kent's going to lead us in the Lord's Supper later, you know, the upper room before Jesus suffers and dies, you know, he takes the cup and he says, this is the cup of the new covenant, you know, the covenant that's made in my blood. And that's the covenant we live under. And guys, we'll talk about this more in the future, but conditional covenant, what I get is determined by what I do. The new covenant, God says it doesn't matter. I'm going to bless them. I'm going to forgive their sins. I'm going to put my law in their hearts. And the standing we have in Christ is phenomenal. And under the new covenant, we simply have blessings that are guaranteed not on our performance, but on Christ's performance, on His death and His resurrection. So to live today under the blessings of the new covenant is a blessing hard, hard to imagine or articulate. How about this? And I've had this question asked, um, do you keep the Ten Commandments? Mike, do you, do you not believe in the Ten Commandments? And I say, well, no, I don't. And generally I tell people, and neither do you. So, Scripture's clear that the, the law and the covenant is a unity. Typically, the groups that espouse today, that say they're Christians, and espouse keeping the Sabbath, the fourth commandment, which is part of the law, they're almost invariably, I haven't met one yet, that doesn't get the gospel wrong. And what they'll say is something like this. The law really had three components. The covenant had three components. Part of it was moral, part of it was civil, and part of it was ceremonial. So we're not worshiping in a temple like the Jews did, and we don't rule our nation like Israel was a theocracy, ideally. Um, but they say, but we do keep the moral law. The groups that say Christians are bound to keep Sabbath inevitably get the gospel wrong. I haven't met one yet that doesn't. I'll talk about that in just a little bit. Um, so, one, we don't keep Sabbath, so we don't keep the law. That's one thing. The other thing is this, though. The ten words, literally in the Hebrew, the ten words, the ten commands, they're just the introduction to the rest of the covenant. They don't stand on their own. You remember the story that Moses goes up to Sinai, meets with God, God gives him the ten words, and he comes down and Israel says, we'll do it. He says, great. He goes back up to the mountain to get the rest of the covenant. The ten words are part of the covenant God made with Israel. We're not under the covenant, we're not under the ten words. 
So do I keep the Ten Commandments in that sense covenantally? No, I don't, and neither do you. Now, let me ask you another question. Do you keep the Ten Commandments on another level? I say, well, yes, I do. But that goes this way. So, easy question. The law, the covenant's given about 1446 B.C. The law says don't murder. Was murder okay before the law? Murder wasn't okay before the law. Cain kills Abel. That's not okay. Murder was not okay before the law. How about sexual immorality? Was that okay before the law? Before God says, don't sleep around. Was that okay? Wasn't okay then either, was it? So what did the law do related to those elements? Things like that. The law codified what was already right and wrong. The ten words do that. They codified what was already right and wrong. Is murder still wrong today, even though we don't live under the covenant that says don't murder? Well, murder's still wrong. So in that sense, do I keep the ten words because they reflect eternal elements of God's character and nature and what's inherently right or wrong? Well, then I say, well, yeah, we do. Sabbath rest, that unique one, the fourth commandment, excuse me, is brought up in Hebrews in which you see as a believer under the new covenant, the Sabbath is kind of this unique thing. The writer there says, and, and actually you do have a Sabbath rest today, but it's not a day of the week. It's the rest you have in Christ. He says Christ is our Sabbath rest. So we're not under that covenant. You can't be. We don't keep the law. We can't. By the way, here's another thing before I forget. Anyone who reads the law is going to be condemned by the law. Absolutely. It can't do anything else. But if you think you measure up favorably by the Ten Commandments or the rest of the law of Moses then go to the Sermon on the Mount because Jesus goes to Jews who think they're okay through law-keeping, the Sermon on the Mount, and He says, you think you're okay because you don't murder, but He said, but I'm telling you, if you have anger in your heart, you're guilty. He said, you think you're okay because you're not sleeping around, but He says, you remember, I tell you, if you look on a woman with lust, you're guilty. So the law was sort of God's easy standard, but Jesus brings it out and forward and he says, but that was just a hint because God requires perfection in thought, word, and deed. The things others can't see. No one can ever be justified by the law except Jesus himself. So the law remains useful for us today. Are we under the law, the covenant? No, we're not. We can't be. But does the law remain useful? Absolutely. Because it still speaks truth to what God counts as important, as moral or immoral, as what I should do or what I shouldn't do. Listen to this from Romans 7, verse 7. Paul again, because he's got to sell this concept uh, to Jews of his day. He says, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. So the 10th word, uh, this is Exodus 20, verse 17. God said, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet. And, and covet, remember, is an unholy desire or lust for what God has given someone else but not you. Okay, someone else can have it, but it's not what God's given you. Uh, don't covet your neighbor's house 
wife, we could say spouse, servants, ox, donkey, anything that's your neighbor's. So Paul says, I'm going along and I think I'm okay. And then someone reads the law to me or I read the law and it says, don't covet. Well, then I start thinking about my own life and I realize, well, I covet all the time. I just hadn't heard the law say, that's not okay, Mike, to covet. And then I realize, oh man, I, I covet my neighbor's spouse or children or house or, you know, you can covet anything up to the most ridiculous things. I realize because the law says don't do it. So the law becomes the lens or the law says don't, don't bear false witness against my neighbor, Exodus 20, 16. The law there, the word wasn't don't lie. It was don't lie about someone else. So I meditate on don't, don't tell something that's not true about someone else. What does that look like in my life? And then I start realizing, you know, when I tell stories about myself and others, I justify myself at their expense. I see it at work in my life because the law says don't do these things. So it's still, it's highly helpful for us just as a, as a tool to say, how am I doing? We still use it as a tool today or should. We all have a conscience, but Paul says that the law will inform our conscience so that we know what God approves and what he doesn't approve. Listen to this from 1 Timothy 1. Uh, in the Ephesians, uh, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy, who's at Ephesus, and, and they've got issues, and, and one of them has to do with what's the relationship to the law. How should I see that? So Paul says there, the law is good if one uses it lawfully, appropriately. What, what does that look like? He says, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, for those who are righteous in God's sight, but for the lawless, the disobedient, the ungodly, sinners, the unholy, and profane. He says, the law is there to show the unholy that they're unholy. It doesn't justify those who are in right standing with God through faith in Christ, but it can be used to show folks where they don't measure up and that that's an issue with a holy and a perfect God becomes the means to show someone the bad news. Oftentimes, uh, if you share the gospel with someone, oftentimes you'll be talking to someone who thinks they're fine just as they are. God's like me. If there's a God, He's like me. I'm a nice guy. God's a nice guy. We'll be fine if He's there at all. But if you say, well, no, there, God is. And here are some of the things He said that He's not okay with. And does this represent your life? And you know what? You'll find it doesn't matter how, how long you go. People don't live according to the law. We, we don't stack up. And it's a way of showing someone you need the good news, guys, because you're under the bad news. You're under the judgment of God. And you see this as fully in the New Testament epistles as you do the judgment or warning passages in the Old Testament. God's not one God in the Old and a different God in the New. He's the same throughout. He's absolutely consistent. If you read the law, if you take the time to read through the law, the first five books of the Bible, you'll, just, you'll see elements of God's perfection, and you will helpfully see areas in which your life may not measure up. When you do, uh, if you're not familiar with it, uh, there's, there are, there's all the stuff in Leviticus that tells priests how to make certain kinds of offerings for certain kinds of sins on certain holidays, etc. That may be a bit confusing. But there's lots of clarity there about do these things or don't do those things. 
So the law, it can show us righteousness, but it can't give us any. It can point out our deficiencies, but it can't do anything about them. And, and here I'm talking in any ultimate sense. You know that if you were a Jew under the law and you sinned, the law said, okay, for this kind of sin, you go to the priest, you offer this kind of sacrifice, the animal's blood is shed, your sin is covered. But all of that, remember, was temporary. Hebrews, again, is clear. Animal blood can't give God forgiveness for you. Only the blood of Christ could do that. Everything was anticipatory leading up to Christ. God always meant the law of Moses to be this temporary means of interacting with Israel and demonstrating everyone's need for a savior. This is Galatians 3. Galatians is a key key epistle in the New Testament related to clarity on the gospel. Romans is too, of course. Galatians is a little bit more concise. When Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, they'd believed in Christ for salvation. They'd received the spirit but Jewish believers had come in and said, guys, it's great that you believe in our Messiah, but you've got to keep the law. And that means, guys, you've got to be circumcised. In fact, they were implying if you don't get circumcision, you're not saved. So in Galatians 1, verses 8 and 9, Paul uses incredibly strong language, and he says this. Those guys are, that are telling you it's faith in Jesus plus your works... He said, my prayer for them is they'll be cut off from God forever. Anathema in the Greek. That they'll be cut off from God forever because the gospel they're sharing with you, faith plus works equals salvation, is not saving, it's damning. In fact, later in the epistle he'll say, those guys that want you to be circumcised, I wish they'd emasculate themselves entirely. It's graphic language. You don't see much of this in the New Testament. But you do about this issue. So in Galatians 3, Paul says this. This is verse 10 through 12. All who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and does them. If I'm a Jew living under the law and I break one commandment, I've broken the covenant and I've broken the law, and I'm subject to God's curse. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, by their own performance for, and he quotes Habakkuk 2, the righteous shall live by faith. He points out that in the Old Testament minor prophet Habakkuk, God was saying we're justified by faith, not by works of the law. We can't keep the law. We're justified by faith. The person who says their hope of heaven is Jesus plus their own efforts and compliance with some kind of morality or moral law has a false hope and a false gospel. So when you talk to someone, or maybe we are someone, who the question is raised, you know, when you die, this is the simple way to help somebody see where they're at. If you die today, will you go to heaven or hell? Everyone says, well, if there is a heaven, I hope I'll go to heaven. Or I think I'll go to heaven. And you say, okay, well, why is that? Why would God let you go to heaven? If you get something like this, uh, even if you get, I believe in Jesus and we're in trouble. But especially if you get this, um, I've tried to live a good life and be a good person. 
that person, that answer is an attempt to approach a holy and perfect God in our imperfections. And it's an impossibility. It can never be done. And the law is meant to show us that, that nobody measures up. And when you have conversations with someone, that is a cue to have a further discussion with them to show them that no one is justified by their works. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9, we're saved by God's grace through faith. It's not something that we work up. It's a gift from God. And it's nothing we can boast about because Christ has done it all. God has done it all. And we simply receive the gift by faith. But we don't earn it. When you hear somebody talking about faith plus works to gain salvation, it's the Galatian heresy. And Paul said he wished those people were cut off from God forever. It's a big deal. It's a huge deal. Romans 7 again, 7 through 11, Paul says this about the law. Sin seized opportunity through the law. Sin produced in me all kinds of coveting. He says the commandment that promised life Remember, the promise is, Moses says, Deuteronomy 4, do it and live. That's the promise. If you do, you will live. He says, the commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. Sin seized an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and killed me. I thought, okay, God says, do these things and you'll live. And I say, okay, we'll do it. And what I find is the promise is there. It's a legitimate promise but I'll never get it because I just see my failures. I don't do and live. I don't do, and I get elements of death. So the law can't give us life, only elements of death, not because it's deficient, not because the law is deficient, because we are, because it's a perfect instrument and it shows us our failures. The law Moses enjoined on Israel couldn't save Israel and can't save us. Oftentimes people are confused about this too. How were people saved in the Old Testament? By God's grace through faith. By God's grace through faith. People will sometimes mistakenly say, well, they were saved by law keeping in the Old Testament. No, you won't read that any place in the Bible. Didn't happen. In fact, when the New Testament writers want to go back and speak about faith and justification, where do they go? They go way back before the law. They go back to Genesis 15, 6. That's James' appeal. It's Paul's appeal. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham believed. God's method of interacting with us on justification didn't change under the law. No one was saved under the law by the law. And if you saw an observant Jew, you know, if you read the opening chapters of Luke's gospel, you get Zechariah, this priest, and he's a good guy. In fact, just like Paul later, it says he's just according to the law. Now, that's just a, a, that's a, a gross, a, a big way of saying he lived in covenant faithfulness. It doesn't mean he didn't sin. The law can't justify him. But he's doing what he knows to do to live in right relationship with God. But that's all he could do. It represented the fact that he already had faith in God. And that's generally what you'll see in discussions about James 2. People are confused. James says, well, you can see that you're justified by what you do, not just by 
faith, and we won't get into all of that today. But the issue is, Abraham's faith was demonstrated years after he's declared righteous. His faith is demonstrated when he offers Isaac. His right or just or righteous standing before God was demonstrated through his willingness to offer Isaac. He trusted God. He believed God. Uh, I want to move, probably for time's sake I should, uh, back to Galatians 3 for a minute. Where does this leave us and and where does Christ enter the picture? Where does Jesus come in with, with the law and with the covenant? Galatians 3 verses 13 and 14 say this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Well, he became a curse for us, for it's written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. Verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. If you go back to Genesis 12 and you see God's call of Abraham, you know, hey, Abraham, come out, leave your, leave your place, go where I show you. Uh, I'm going to make you a father of many nations and all families on the earth, they'll be blessed in you. You don't necessarily know that when you read Genesis, but this says that salvation and the promise of the Spirit and eternal life in and with and through Christ was part of what God was inferring in Genesis 12. He didn't spell it all out there, but Paul does here in Galatians 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It's in Christ that we receive the promise God always meant to give way back in Genesis 12 when he was talking to Abraham. Galatians 3 verses 21 through 29, Paul says, The law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was this temporary guardian over my life, over Israel's life, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Abraham was justified by faith. People under the law were justified by faith. Today we're justified by faith in Christ. It says we're no longer under a guardian. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Guys, if you've if you got a daddy at home, you don't need a guardian. And if you're sons and daughters of God, you don't need a guardian. And you're God's children through faith in Christ, you don't need a guardian any longer. I think your, your study sheet has a reference to Romans 7. I'll pass by for now. Um, I don't know if any of you have met. I grew up in a very religious household. And uh, in fact, I met a guy just this week, made a delivery to my house. Uh, Roman Catholic, devout, uh, devout. Uh, people that are serious about doing the right thing and uh, doing right before God. And, um, and what you'll find is this. Um, if you're serious about measuring up to God's standards so that you're justified by your works, what you'll find is that the law will crush you. It'll crush you under your efforts to be justified by what you can do. And isn't it interesting? You know, who is the flame in Germany that God really used to get the Reformation going? It was a Roman Catholic monk. And you know what this guy was like? He was serious about the law. Martin Luther was as serious as they came. And he was a monk, and he's reading God's Word, and he's trying to measure up. And what does he find? Every day, multiple times a day, he finds, I'm crushed. I've sinned again, and I've sinned again. 
His confessor, I kid you not, in the monastery, his confessor said, I don't want to see you and I don't want to hear you. Because he was, I'm serious, he was wearing him out. He was going to him multiple times every day to confess his sins, to repent, to do penance. And the guy's just like, get over this. That's the guy reading Romans 1, quoting Habakkuk 2, that when he reads the just live by faith, not by law keeping, he got it. And the Reformation really took off through Martin Luther and the understanding that we're not living under the law, we're living under God's grace in Christ and we're justified by faith in Christ plus nothing. That was the real start, the spark plug, if you will, for the Reformation. It was not law, but God's grace in Christ. People who look to their own righteousness with the sense that I'm okay, they're kidding themselves. And then I think one of the kindest things you can do is have a conversation with them where you introduce them to more of the law. To say, if you think you're okay to stand blameless before a blameless and holy God, how are you doing on all these elements of the law that represent God's moral standards? How do you measure up? Are you level? Are you plumb? Are you square with God in the world? Do you really measure up? Because no one does. So the kindest thing we can do is introduce them to more law. Nothing other than the perfection of Christ's once for all substitutionary offering of himself on the cross for our sins can get us saved and right in standing with God. And no one other than Jesus himself can lead us out of law and law-keeping into the fertile fields of grace and faith and peace and present us before the Father blameless with great joy. No one else can do it. No other way, no other person. I want to close by reading the closing verses out of Romans 8. And after I do, I'll have a stand and we'll read another part out of Romans 2 to conclude. Listen to this from Romans 8, which winds down multiple chapters in Romans in which Paul's talking about the spiritual relationship believers have with life. He says, if God is for us, us here are believers in Jesus, not people working under the law. We've trusted in Christ. If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a good question. You could stop right there, couldn't you? If God is the one defending me, what charge would I need to worry about? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if God's given you the apple of his eye, the thing he cherishes most, you can it's a no-brainer. He'll give you any lesser treasure. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is it who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. <clears throat> More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. If you need a good defense attorney before heaven's bar, do you think Jesus is an adequate attorney? I'll bet he is. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? As it's written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Remember, Christians, when Paul's writing this, Christians are already under persecution. And it won't be long before Paul is beheaded in a Roman prison, loses his life. Persecution's going on. And he's like, well, what about, are we okay with God? Because we're being persecuted. Verse 37, nope. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
For I am sure that neither death nor life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Guys, Moses in his day said to Israel, do and you'll live. That's law. That's old covenant. That's not us. Today we say believe or have faith or trust and live. We place our faith in Christ and we're saved. And all the blessings of God, the blessings God promised Israel, they're just sort of the beginnings of the blessings you and I will experience with God in Christ in eternity forever and ever. And you can go back to one of the verses I love out of the Old Testament, Psalm 16, David wrote that in God's presence there is joy and there are pleasures forevermore. That's your future and that's mine in Christ. Well, stand with me, please, and let's read Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. And as we do, think about the contrast between the law of Moses, where we've got to measure up, and the law of life in Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free